Sequence analysis of cell-free DNA fragments that circulate in the blood of pregnant women has transformed prenatal care, offering a new method of screening for fetal chromosome abnormalities. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Diana Bianchi from NIH's National Human Genome Research Institute, who has co-authored a Frontiers in Medicine article about the sequencing of circulating cell-free DNA during pregnancy. Dr. Bianchi, how would you advise clinicians to counsel their patients about the role of cell-free DNA in prenatal screening? What should they be telling patients to do? Well, cell-free DNA sequencing during pregnancy is one of many options for screening for the common chromosome abnormalities. Generally, extra copies of chromosome 21, which results in Down syndrome, an extra copy of chromosome 18, extra copy of chromosome 13. It's part of standard prenatal care for pregnant women to be offered the opportunity to have screening for these common chromosome abnormalities. Pregnant women are not required to have the screening, but physicians are advised to give the information and to let the woman decide. What's different about the DNA sequencing is that it is a much more precise screen. It's associated with much higher positive predictive values than the current standard of care, which is a combination of biochemical screening and an ultrasound measurement known as the nuchal translucency. What do I mean by the positive predictive values? It's if a woman gets a positive screening result for, say, Down syndrome, depending on her age and her general risk, uh, you know, generally it's over a 90% chance that the fetus has trisomy 21. And that's different from the current standard of care where the positive predictive values are generally along the range of about 5%. So what that means is with the less precise screening, a lot of women get false positive results. And what that means is they're then advised to consider having a diagnostic procedure, such as an amniocentesis or a chorionic villus biopsy. And what we found is that many of those tests are really unnecessary when you have a more precise screen. So with the DNA sequencing, it more accurately pinpoints the women who truly need the diagnostic test to confirm that their fetus has a chromosome abnormality. Similarly, for the majority of women, they get a negative screen. And the negative predictive values are on the order of over 99%. So most women, even if they're high risk because of their advanced age, let's say, if they get a negative DNA screen, they may not need to have an amniocentesis or a chorionic villus sampling if all they're concerned about is making sure that their baby doesn't have one of these common chromosome abnormalities. Abnormalities that are detected by cell-free DNA sequencing are then confirmed by diagnostic karyotyping or microwave studies by necessity. Are physicians sufficiently well-informed about the need for that confirmatory testing, and what can be done to ensure that they're very clear about it? Yeah, I think that's a great question because with the initial marketing of this technology, a lot of the messages were along the lines of, this is so good, it's almost diagnostic. And that confused physicians and other providers. 
It's an excellent screen, but anytime you have a positive screen, all of the professional recommendations say that you need to confirm that with a diagnostic test that, as you said, either looks at the chromosomes of the fetus or a chromosomal microarray, which is looking at the DNA in the chromosomes of the fetus. But there are reasons that you can have a false positive result. And one of the biggest reasons is that the placenta has a chromosome abnormality that the fetus doesn't have. So it's very important to get material from the fetus, such as you would with an amniocentesis, and to confirm the fetus's actual chromosome count and whether anything is missing or duplicated. But the DNA sequencing is only a screen. So you talked about false positive results. How do the women and their physicians deal with those? So it's very important to recognize that this is a screen, not a diagnosis. So if the screen comes back positive, let's say for a sex chromosome abnormality such as Turner syndrome, there is a significant chance that the abnormality is actually in the mother rather than the fetus. So the first step, as I've mentioned before, is to confirm the screen with a diagnostic procedure. But let's say that the diagnostic procedure reveals that the fetus has normal chromosomes or a normal chromosome microarray. Then the next step is to investigate the mother because the sequencing analyzes both maternal and placental DNA. And in the review, we go through the many biological causes for a false positive result. And in fact, we've learned quite a lot of new things about fetoplacental and maternal biology from the widespread implementation of this testing. Probably the most dramatic is that some women who get very unusual DNA results actually have a tumor. The women are asymptomatic, but they have a malignancy that is shedding DNA into their circulation and throwing off the ratios of the different chromosomes. So what you typically get are multiple chromosome abnormalities, which would be very unlikely in a developing fetus. So once you confirm that the fetal chromosomes are normal, then you begin to consider evaluating the mother, even though she may be appearing to be a healthy pregnant woman. But we know of uh, at least 40 cases now that have been reported in the literature of women who have been pregnant and generally asymptomatic, but who presented with these very atypical prenatal screening DNA results. So how can that fetal fraction of circulating DNA impact the reliability of the results? And are there ways to optimize that fetal fraction? So the fetal fraction is really, so when we use the term fetal, we're really meaning placental. It's very important for the listeners to recognize that the DNA that is being analyzed in the mother's circulation originates from the placenta. The placenta is undergoing apoptosis and it's continually remodeling itself. And as a result of that, there are these cell-free DNA fragments that are released into the circulation. So that's why you can get this discrepancy between the placenta and the fetus, because what you're measuring and analyzing is placental DNA. So you have placental DNA, but you also have that mixed in the mother's DNA. 
What's in the mother's blood that's coming from her own systems include cell-free DNA from nucleated blood cells, such as white blood cells, and you also get some from fat tissue. So fat tissue can undergo apoptosis and necrosis and release more DNA. Also, if the mother has a thromboembolic disorder or something related to the blood, such as vitamin B12 deficiency, the DNA that is in her system is fragmented and can interfere with the accuracy of this test. So the fetal fraction refers to the percent of placental DNA within the total DNA, which is a combination of maternal DNA and placental DNA. And there needs to be a certain percentage to ensure that the counting part of the technology is precise enough to give you an accurate result. Do you think there's a role for whole genome screening of cell-free DNA in pregnancy? There are examples now of whole genome sequencing of diagnostic material obtained from fetuses who have normal karyotypes, normal chromosome microarrays, but who have ultrasound-detected abnormalities. And in that setting, the whole exome sequencing on, say, amniotic fluid cells has been helpful in establishing a diagnosis in perhaps 20 to 30 percent of cases. Extrapolating that to a non-invasive blood test is somewhat more complicated, and it is particularly complicated by the fact that you have the mother's DNA in there. And this is different from the technology used to look for fetal whole chromosome abnormalities, where it's really a counting mechanism, as we describe in the article. When you move to whole genome sequencing, you're now looking at the base pairs or the exact genetic code, and that can be complicated by the fact that the mother shares DNA with the fetus. So we're not quite ready to extend this on a population basis. There have been some proof of principle cases, but most of those cases, the fetal karyotype has been known ahead of time. What has been done and what is described in the article is using non-invasive cell-free DNA sequencing to detect a fetus at risk for a single gene disorder. So this is only being done right now in the setting of a high-risk fetus, for example, a fetus with a suspected skeletal dysplasia on ultrasound, or a fetus that is known to be at risk for a hemoglobinopathy or cystic fibrosis, for example, where you know what you're looking for ahead of time in the mother's blood, and you also have advanced information on the mother's genotype and the father's genotype. Finally, what lies ahead? What do you see as the future of cell-free DNA sequencing? Well, we do think that it has significant potential to help with underlying determination of why a pregnancy is miscarried. So chromosome abnormalities, particularly whole chromosome abnormalities, do account for many miscarriages, but by the time the woman recognizes that she's miscarried, there may not be an opportunity to do any sort of pathology studies. So potentially, while the placenta is still attached to the woman's uterus, there's the opportunity opportunity to look for chromosome abnormalities as one reason for miscarriage, that would definitely be something that wouldn't really be too difficult to do. 
Um, in addition, there's still quite a bit of discussion at the present time as to who should have the cell-free DNA testing for the common chromosome abnormalities as a first-tier test. Currently in the United States, many women get access to it if they are high risk, but if they are low risk, they generally have to pay for it or have the current standard of care, which I previously said was not as precise a screen. So a big question in the field is when can we move this over to first tier testing? Um, lastly, I think that there will be continued movement towards non-invasive testing for single gene disorders as well as whole genome screening, sequencing, but we have a, a way to go in terms of making the technology more affordable and certainly educating both physicians, providers, and patients about all of the implications. Thank you, Dr. Bianchi.